God is good, isn't he? I'd love for you to open your Bibles today to the book of Acts. If you were with us on uh, last week, last Sunday, you know that uh, uh, we started talking about the sermons in the book of Acts, the first sermons that the church preached. One of the reasons that this is important to us, and, and I want us to get, get an old religious way of thinking out of our heads. When we say the early church, it's very easy for us to think of them as a different church. We say, well, that, we want it to be like the early church. Man, look at what the early church did. That's awesome. But let me tell you, when you keep referring to them as the early church, sometimes it's easy to forget they're still the church. It's the church in the early history, it's the church in the first couple centuries, but it's still the church, and you're still the church. So the early church and the latter church have something in common. Praise God, this table will stand in Jesus' name. <laughs> they got something in common. They've got the name of Jesus. They've got the Spirit filled, filling them. They've got the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as they go out and reach the Word. It's the same Spirit in us. It's the same name we've been given. And so as we read some of these early sermons that were preached, I want you to know the world we live in is not that different from the world they lived in. Some of the same issues they dealt with we're dealing with today. A lot of people think, well, no, no, this is all new. I mean, this is the, the, the lie we buy into because science has advanced, because technology has come along, because we've learned some things. We think that humanity is fundamentally different, but we're not. We're still humans. And we still have the same need as a human being did 2,000 years ago. And we still have the same desires. And there's still, still the same temptations of the enemy. And there's still some of the same issues that our culture is facing today. If you went back to the first, first three centuries of Ephesus, of Corinth, of, of some of these places of Rome even, you would say, wow, this sounds familiar. And you watch how the, 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 the apostles, the, the church of Jesus Christ, how they moved into these spaces that were hostile, how they moved into spaces that were uh, not acknowledging that there was one God. And with the grace of God, with the power of God, and with the truth of the gospel, they went in and they overcame. I thank God that that's, that's what we've been called to as well. Last week we talked about Peter standing up in the city that crucified Jesus. A city in which he, had, he and the other guys had hidden in the houses trying not to be noticed because they were afraid of the people. Jesus shows up to them alive and everything changes. When Jesus spends 40 days with them, he prepares them and he tells them, stay in the city. This dangerous city, this hostile city, stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. I want you to know that the church cannot be the church without the power of God. You guys don't sound sure about it, but I'm sure about it. We can't be the church without the power of God. Like we cannot be a church of philosophy. We cannot be a church of empty religion. We can't be a church that preaches a doctrine and has no power to back it up. So Jesus said, don't do a thing. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave the, don't leave the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And I love that because that's what the Holy Spirit is meant to be. He's meant that the Holy Spirit is meant to fill us but also clothe us. Just as we're clothed in Christ, just as we're clothed in the love of the Father, just as we've been baptized into Jesus, so we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit and power. Amen? That's what Jesus said. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and power. So, gospel without power is not gospel. 
Here we are in, uh, two millennia later, and these sermons are still ringing out like they were preached yesterday. So Peter preached that message. 3,000 people got born again. And then the Bible tells us, and we'll pick up here in Acts chapter 2. We're going to do a lot of reading today, but I will try my best uh, not to get, let you get bogged down. Uh, but we're gonna, it's important that we see the context of this sermon. Acts chapter 2 verse 43 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now what is awe? It's wonder, it's reverence, yes. I mean, think about it this way. Awe is kind of like a positive way of being freaked out. It's just a good way to handle being freaked out. You don't know what's going on. You're like, this is new. This is amazing. This is kind of crazy. I'm in awe. It means it, it, it bypassed their, their ability to understand what was going on. But they knew it was good. The Bible talks about these, this phrase, signs and wonders. Signs, just like it sounds like, signs are meant to point you to something, yeah? A sign is, an, is, is, is otherwise translated as an attesting miracle. It's something that proves what God said. So there were signs that Jesus performed that proved he was the Messiah. But Jesus also performed wonders. We might call these just... I mean, both signs and wonders are, are miracles, but a wonder is something that doesn't necessarily prove, you know, that this is a fulfillment of prophecy or anything like that, but a wonder is meant to get your attention. That it, it, It's something that, that, that we go, that's not possible. And so it, it causes us to stop and to look. It causes us to stop and, and to wake up. It causes us to say, what's going on? This isn't normal. And the Bible tells us that the word of God was preached and signs and wonders followed the preaching of the word. That pattern is still today, isn't it? The word has power. And when the word is preached with authority, signs and wonders follow. And so here's what happened. It says they were feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and they were breaking bread from house to house. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Every day, people are getting saved. Now, Peter and John were going to the temple at the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon, the hour of prayer. And a man who'd been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms, or like ask for money, of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't possess any silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Christ, we think of it, we we hear it so often now, we think of it almost like Jesus' last name, but it's not. Christos was just the Greek translation of Messiah. So Peter is saying, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene. Now, why is he saying the Nazarene? Well, yes, that fulfilled prophecy. The Bible says he will be called a Nazarene. 
But more specifically, I think this is why he said it, is because the Bible tells us there were lots of guys named Jesus, and there were some of them leading revolutionary movements. And Peter is making sure this man knows which Jesus I'm talking about. Jesus, the Messiah of Nazareth, get up and walk. That takes a lot of boldness. It takes a lot of boldness not just to say, I'll ask if, I, if God will do this, but to say, I have something for you. I have this. I have something for you. Not only that, it takes a ton of boldness to grab somebody who's crippled and pull them up and just believe that they're going to be able to stand. Or else you've just committed assault, right? <laughs> just grab somebody. Don't go yanking people up <laughs> unless you know they're going to stay up, right? Those stony steps are stony, right? That would not be a good experience. Something happened that day that, that you got to think about it. The Bible tells us, just we just read it, that daily they were continuing in the temple. It says it was the hour of prayer, not the day of prayer, but the hour of prayer. In other words, Peter and John had a routine, along with the rest of the church, of going to pray at the temple every day. So there's a pattern, there's a rhythm in their life. We go to, this is, every day we're going to the temple and we're praying. So the Bible tells us here, this guy's there all the time. I'm sure Peter and John have walked by him a lot. What's different now? What's different now? What's changed? Now, why today? It's not the first time they've been asked for money. It's not the first time he stood in front of them. But there's something. Remember, the Bible tells us that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's something that's in them that goes, today's this man's day. They knew today was the day. This wasn't their idea. This is God's idea. Here's what happens. With a leap, it's, sorry, it says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. Seizing him by his right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. That's important because whatever caused him to be crippled from birth is part of his problem. But the other part is he's never walked, so he doesn't even have the muscles for it. Doesn't have his, his, he doesn't have the, 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 the bone structure, the muscles, all that. But all of that came in an instant. Whatever caused him to be crippled was healed, plus he was strengthened and he began to stand up on his feet, the Bible says in verse 8, with a leap he stood upright and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. How inappropriate for the temple. I used to run around in the church a lot, like run around, like I know the way I said it sounded like I was gambling or something. I, I used to run around in the church, I used to run a game in the basement. No, I just actually ran around. I used to run around in the church, and my parents would say, don't run. It's a church, don't run. And uh, so I found a loophole one day. Um, I'm, I'm, go, rump, I'm running and jumping, and my dad said, hey, Jonathan, don't run. I said, I'm not running, I'm galloping. I'm galloping because I was a lawyer from the age. You know, I'm galloping. It's, you can't call me. You can't catch me on running because that's not technically running, Right? <laughs> And if your kids try to pull that, send them to me. I know. I've been through it. I will talk to them. We got some, we got some, some mothers in Loon Lake who tell their kids, hey, this is God's house. Don't run. And so there's this kid that just every time he comes, he calls me God. And I have to keep telling him, I'm not God. But he thinks I live there because every time he shows up, I'm there. And if it's God's house and you're always here, you're God, right? No, I'm not God. But there's an appropriate time to walk and leap and praise God. 
when we had a little bit more room in the sanctuary, we had aisles on the side. And, you know, sometimes someone would take off running and you just let them run. And I've been, you know, we kind of had to develop a, a system where you have to run clockwise. <laughs> or else we're going to have to have a whole nother prayer meeting <laughs> praying for people with bruised heads and noses, right? Walking and leaping and praising God. Now, what does praising God mean? He's telling people what God did. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because the people in that temple just killed Jesus. And he's telling everybody, I got up because of Jesus. It says, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. It got their attention at what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So this is, a, this is an alcove, this is an outdoor area in, on the temple grounds where there'd be colonnades. There's like a porch, but it's, it's, it's a covered area, but it's outside as well. And they gather there on temple grounds, and this guy's clinging to them, and a crowd gathers. And it says, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? And what's power? As if by, by our own power. In other words, he's saying this wasn't witchcraft. This isn't sorcery. So the, the Bible is very strong against witchcraft and sorcery because what that is, is that's a human being trying to manipulate the forces of nature. My power is doing this. That's not the Bible. When we see people healed and delivered and saved and set free, it's the power of God working through a person, but it's God. And he says, it's not my own power that did this. And listen, this is important. He says, it's my, not my own piety that did this either. What is piety? That's your own holiness, godliness, righteousness. Piety is like, I, he's, he's basically saying, it's not because I was so good that God did this through me. I am not this perfect saint that God can heal somebody through me because I'm a saint. No, he's saying like it wasn't because of me. And that's, that's something religions throughout history have really messed up on. Even so-called Christian religions have separated this group of people. These are saints and these are normal people. But the Bible tells us that everyone that is washed by the blood of Jesus is a saint. In order to become a saint by one church's uh, 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 qu you know, quota, you have to have performed a miracle. And, and it almost sounds like that person did a miracle. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. I want to tell you, there is no miracle that a man has done outside of God's authority, outside of his power, and not one of us can be so holy that we deserve a miracle. But we're holy by the blood of Jesus. We're made righteous by his, his work, his sacrifice, and miracles are meant to happen as a result of God working through people. Jesus said, in my name. Remember, this is not too long before this moment, and I'm sure it's running through Peter's head. In my name, you will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. In my name, you will speak with other tongues. In my name, you will cast out demons. In my name, you will drink any deadly thing, and it will not harm you. In my name, you will tread on serpents and scorpions. And that's running through Peter's head. It's not my piety that did this. I'm not such a good Christian that God did it. I'm not, I don't have any power to offer. We didn't do this. How did we do it then? Here we go. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate and when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. I love this. Not only is he glorifying Jesus. Listen, he's glorifying Jesus. He's saying he's the holy one. He's the righteous one. He's the prince of life. He is the, he's, he's calling him the Messiah. But he's also telling them very bluntly like he did in the last sermon. You killed him. Watch, watch what he says. You put him to death, but God raised him up. And I love that. You put him to death. But God raised him up. Once again, I've said this last week, but you're in hostile territory. Tell some jokes. Win them over. You know, butter them up. He's not doing any of that. He's telling them the truth. This is the Messiah. God exalted Jesus. Now listen, he could have easily have made this all about the miracle. The miracle was important, but it wasn't all about the miracle. It was all about Jesus. Signs are meant to point you to something. Wonders are meant to get your attention for something, right? Now, let me, just, let me just say this as well. If you're thinking, well, that's the only reason God does miracles is to get our attention or to point us to something, that's not what the Gospels tell us. The Gospels actually tell us that Jesus was moved with compassion. So Jesus didn't just do something to prove he was the Messiah. He healed people because he loved them. It was the heart of God. If he just wanted to prove he was powerful, he could have killed a bunch of people too. He could have called down fire. He could have crushed people with mountains. There's a reason that every miracle Jesus did was a restorative one. It's because whether it was deliverance or healing or whatever it was, it's because that's the heart of God. So God didn't just heal this man to get a crowd. God healed this man because he loved this man. But he's going to use this miracle. Amen. He's going to use this miracle for his glory. So it's, it doesn't have to be either or, guys. A lot of times we're trying to find the either or. Did he do the miracle to show that he was this? Or did he do the miracle just because he loved the man? Why not both? Isn't God big enough for both? Right? Once again, if God just wanted to prove he was powerful, he could kill a ton of people. Why is it that every miracle Jesus did was a good one? Why did, why did every miracle Jesus did reflect the heart of the Father? So listen, listen to what happens. He says, you put him to death, but God raised him up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. They'd known this guy since he was a kid. This isn't some ringer that got brought in from, from another town and, and acted like he was crippled. This is a man that's grown up with them. They said he was over 40 years old. They've known him for decades. They've seen him at the temple. He says, you see him, you know him. God gave him strength. It is the name of Jesus. We're going to go back to that in a minute. Which come, And it says, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent 
and return. What's going to happen when you do that? Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, here's, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you guys. He's the Messiah. He's the Holy One. He's the Prince of Life. And just as he's exalting Jesus, there's that nail to the heart, but you killed him. And in that moment, we would all feel like this, oh, no. Because think about it, guys. This is what they've been waiting for all their lives as the Messiah. This is what they've been singing about and talking about in school. They've been learning about it. We've been waiting for the Messiah. And can you imagine the stab to the heart to hear that you had him and you killed him? Not only did you kill him, but he was about to get off. Pilate was going to let him go, and you demanded that he, that he be crucified. You rather have a, 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 a murderer released to you than Jesus. But watch this. Peter doesn't say, I'm going to let them stew in their guilt for a week. And then I'll come back and I'll give them a message. What does he say? Now, repent and return. Now, repent and return that your sins would be wiped away, washed away. And that times of refreshing would come in the presence of the Lord. I love that. Peter does not leave them in their despair. He doesn't leave them in their guilt. He's not shy about telling them that you did this. But he's very clear about the message of the gospel. But friends, today is your day of salvation. This is the message that rings out through Acts. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Today is that day. And here's what he says. Don't, don't, don't just sit there. Repent and return. We said this last week, but repentance is a gift from God. You cannot repent without God. You don't have the power to repent. The Bible says in Hebrews that Esau sought repentance with tears and could not find it. You can't repent without God drawing your heart, without a way being made back. Listen, we created this chasm, this canyon between us and God. Our rebellion, our sin created separation. It created separation from us and God. It's created separation between us and our fellow brothers and sisters, our moms and dads, our kids. Sin separates. And we see it so clearly that when people sinned, it separated us from God and we died. So we could say, hey, we're way over here. We kept walking. And with every step, the chasm widened. And we could turn back and say, oh, I've changed my mind. I want to go back. But unless Jesus had made a bridge, you could never get back. You could never get back. Somebody doesn't go on a killing spree and just say, you know what, I want to be a positive member of society all of a sudden. And we go, sure, okay, yeah. That's not how the world works. There's consequences. Here's the problem. The consequences for our sin is not jail time. The consequences for our sin is death. And do you know who hates that more than you is God himself. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So Jesus made a bridge. Jesus made a bridge. Jesus made a way. He's been drawing your heart. The Bible says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with my loving kindness. But God will not force you over that bridge. You have to repent and return. And then when you do, what happens? 
The sins are washed away. In times of refreshing, come in the presence of the Lord. You know, isn't it, isn't it crazy all the coping mechanisms that our culture has created? The endless amounts of therapy and medication. And, all the, and I'm not against therapy or medication, by the way. But I'm just telling you, we don't seem to be fixing it. We, we haven't fixed it. We have more depression, more anxiety, more suicides than we've probably ever had. I don't know if you'll believe me, but I'm telling you the truth. I have probably done more funerals for suicides than any other type of funeral. Isn't that crazy? That's not the way it should be. What if the world discovered, because of a church that believes it, that when you repent and you return, not only are your sins wiped away, but you are restored to the presence of God. Sin separated us from his presence. It was very obvious in the Garden of Eden. Angels stood guard and put a flaming sword, would not let Adam and Eve back into the garden. We were separated from the presence of God, but we are now being restored to his presence. I love this because it's not just like, well, someday I'll go to heaven. Praise the Lord. That is amazing. That is a promise that, that is one of the most beautiful promises I'll ever hear in my life. I cling to that, the hope that lies before me, that I will forever be with the Lord is a, is a great promise. But forever be with the Lord should start today. Amen. Eternal life doesn't start tomorrow. It starts now. And so the idea of saying, I, I, I am not just being restored to fellowship at a church. Thank God for that. I'm not just being restored back to right standing with God so that I'm not held guilty. But I'm also, because of that right standing with God, because of that righteousness, I am able to come boldly into the throne of grace and find mercy and help, grace to help me in a time of need. I am restored to his presence. And being restored to his presence is where the times of refreshing come from. I, I know this. I know you know this. Is that there is no refreshing that can touch the refreshing in the presence of God. One of my colleagues who used to pastor right here in town. He said he was, he was quite a bit older than me. And he said something wise that he, we were talking about, you know, pastors, how much time should you take? And, you know, when do you, when do you guys take off or whatever? And he said... Uh, he said, you know what, one thing I've learned, he said, you need to take time to rest, you need to take time with your family, but he said, there is a fatigue, and you've probably heard me repeat this, there is a fatigue that, that vacations will never touch. No matter how many days you spend in Hawaii, it doesn't matter how many time you spent over there in Nanaimo, it, there, is, there is a fatigue, a, 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 a tiredness, a, a weariness that holidays will never fix. And they can only be restored in the presence of God. And it's our deepest core fatigue. Because we're supposed to live out of a life that comes from the innermost. Rivers of living water. It's the spirit, right? Times of refreshing. I love that. Times. Not just a time of refreshing, but times of refreshing. And guys, if you need that, it's here. He says this. And that. He may send Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you. So he's talking about the return of the king. Then he says, just like Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that doesn't heed the prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and his successors onward have announced these days. It's you. 
who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, we're supposed to be the one that blessed the world. But we have to repent and return. We're supposed to be the ones that bless the planet, but we've got to repent and return. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. What if, what if we started talking to each other like this, that turning from our wicked ways was not something we had to do because, you know, if we want to be a Christian, I guess I have to give this fun thing up. What if we actually realized that there's death and life and that, and that I don't want to go down the path of death. You don't have to tell me that bleach is bad for me to drink. I know that. I don't crave it. You don't say, I mean, well, I know you love to drink bleach, but we'd prefer that you not do that. It's just not a good witness to the world. No, it's killing me. It would kill me. I'm not doing it. It would kill me if I did it. <laughs> right? So I, I, don't, I don't long to drink bleach. Why? Because you know the damage it does. It, tastes, it probably tastes terrible, too, but... Even if it tasted good, even if those Tide Pods looked delicious, <laughs> you know that it's bad, so you don't do it, right? The problem is we crave things because everything you crave that's evil, every lust that you have that you struggle with, it's an area where we have not been fully convinced that God is better. It's an idol that we think is, we're trying to get it to fill something. We're trying to get it to replace something. It's an area we say, God, you can't meet this need, so I'm going to meet it with this. What if we believe this scripture where he says he's going to bless you by turning you from wickedness? What if we told that to our kids? What if that was the message at the youth conference? God wants to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. Instead of trying to convince them like, oh, it's just I know you got to soul your white old. So just, just try to stay pure. Just try to stay. In, just try to stay away from I know it's hard. But like, what if we were honest with them and told them God is blessing you by giving you the power to overcome. And you don't have to be put down or bound by anything. You can be free in Jesus' name. And preach the power of God and not just some empty religion that says, hey, guys, we'd rather you not do that because that's a really bad reflection of us on the world. God's blessing you. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. This is not the good kind of laid hands on them. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who'd heard the message believed. This is important. Many of them who heard the message believed. Even the most perfect sermon doesn't win everybody. Right? Doesn't say everybody believed, but many of them did. Listen to this. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. Can you imagine the kind of like church growth headaches that they're experiencing? Like they grew from 120 to 3,120 in a day, and now they've got to add five grand to that. Where are we going to put everybody? Where are we? I mean, like, how are we going to do this? But God's grace was sufficient. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. They got the A-team together. And Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all of those who were high priestly descent. One of those guys that we just read, it was his backyard that Jesus was put on trial. 
And it says here that they put them right in the center, and they began to inquire. They brought, listen to guys, they brought the rulers, they brought the elders, and they brought the scribes. Like, the scribes are like the lawyers that know the Bible, and are going to catch you on a technicality. And they surround them. They put Peter and John right in the middle, intimidation tactic. We're going to surround you and just pepper you with accusation. Remember, Peter was in one of these guys' backyard when he denied Jesus three times because he was afraid of him. Now he's right next to him, looking him in the eye, standing in the middle. And what's he going to do now? Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Tend my sheep. What's he going to do in this moment? Is he going to deny Jesus again? Is he going to back down? No, he's a different Peter. They placed him in the center and they began to inquire, by what power, what, or in what name have you done this? This is something modern Christians need to understand. That the name of Jesus is not an abracadabra. It's not just a badge we put on. The name of Jesus is, not, is the authority, the power, the representation of who he is. And so what they want to know is we can't deny there was a miracle. We want to know how you did it and who gave you the authority, the right, the power to do it. Because that's what you have to understand. When Jesus gave you his name, he doesn't just say, I'm going to give you the privilege of being called a Christian. He gives you his name. That's his authority. That's his power. And that's his representation. His name is everything that he is. That's why I can't just sprinkle the name of Jesus at the end of my prayer and hope it gets answered, right? Because if I pray something that's not in the will of God, I am not praying in the name of Jesus. I can say in the name of Jesus 15 times, but if I'm not praying his will, it's not in his name. In his name means as if it were me. Now think about the power that when you pray according to the word of God, according to the will of God, by the spirit of God. That God hears that prayer as if Jesus prayed it. Have you ever thought about that? Does that is that the way we feel when we pray? Is that the way we? Uh, is that the way our voice sounds when we pray? I mean, like honestly, sometimes there's not just one way to pray. Sometimes you pray loud. Sometimes you pray quiet. Sometimes you pray. There's different types of prayer. But do you know that when you say in the name of Jesus and you are actually praying how He taught us to pray? And when you don't know what his will is, what do you do? You pray in the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says. And when you pray in the Spirit, the Spirit prays through you, the perfect will of God. If you don't know his will, you check the word. And if the word's not clear, like the word doesn't tell you whether you should live in Lloydminster or Calgary or Saskatoon. So what do you do? You you inquire of the Lord. And sometimes you say, Lord, I don't know your will here, so I'm going to pray what I do know. But when you pray in the name of Jesus, when you speak in the name of Jesus... You have the full backing of Jesus Christ. And these guys understand that. Even their enemies understand this. Where did you get the right to say that? And where did you get the power to do that? That's big. When you're driving on a highway and an RCMP officer steps out and puts his hand up like this and you stop, is he putting out this strong electromagnetic force that stopped your car? Is he X-Menning you right now? Like, ah, ah. No, what, what caused you to stop? I'm not, I'm not saying he stepped out in front of you. What if he's just on the side and does this? But you stop. What do you, stop? You, you stop because he's an RCMP officer. Right? Why do you stop for him? Because this is not just Bob. He's representing something much bigger. He's representing governmental authority. And so you stop because you know, I have to stop for this. Right? 
But what if Bob doesn't put on his uniform today? Today he's, he's off work. In fact, he quits the force. He's done. I don't want to be an RCP officer anymore. But I think I'm going to try that trick again. He comes out and he just goes, hey, stop. Stop in the name of the, I was going to say in the name of the law, but I don't have that anymore. Stop in the name of Bob. Do you have to stop for Bob? No, because Bob's just a dude. But when Bob was an RCMP officer with a badge and a uniform and a car with the lights, you knew that, that you're not stopping for Bob, you're stopping for the RCMP. Now, that's just a little grain of human authority, but think about what it means when demons have to listen to believers because they have to listen to Jesus. And it must annoy them that you, that person that they once held in their grasp so tight, you, that person they thought they could manipulate and use for their own purposes, now is bossing them around, now is judging them, now is casting them out of people and out of cities. Now you're telling them what to do, and it must drive them nuts. But they have to because you are here not in the name of Nick, not in the name of JL. You're here in the name of Jesus. Who gave you the right? Peter says it very clearly. It wasn't me. It was in the name of Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus just decided. I didn't mean to do it. Peter had to step out and be bold and take action. He didn't just walk by and go, oh, I guess Jesus wanted to heal you. Cool. Right on. He had to believe what I have. What do I have? I have the name of Jesus. I'm representing Jesus right now. What does Jesus want to do? I know by the Spirit, today is this man's day. You're healed. That's huge. So they ask him this. Here's the response, and I love this. Remember, standing in the presence of some pretty powerful guys, including the guy that owned the courtyard that Peter denied Jesus in. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I pray that every time you're placed in a situation like this, that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That you would not respond out of self-defense. Listen, read the book of Acts, read the New Testament, and think about how different it would have been had they been concerned about their own privileges, self-defense, rights, whatever. They stood in the name of Jesus. They didn't back down. They didn't, they didn't lash out in anger. They responded in the power of God. That's the way we need to respond. Fill with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, he's a little sarcasm there. Like, if we're on trial for making a guy well, that's how you want to spend your time? Prosecuting people, healing guys. Sure, yeah. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, once again, Jesus, the Messiah, don't get it twisted, from Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now, it's the same. Peter knows the hits, and he will sing the hits at every concert. <laughs> He's the Messiah, and you killed him. If, I have, if you haven't heard me say it before, I'll say it again. Whom God, once again, you crucified, but God raised from the dead. I love that. By this name. This man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Old Testament prophecy. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter, once again, think about it. This is what we said last week. He is bringing the scripture alive. And he's saying, you know that verse you guys know that you think was about something thousands of years ago? It's about right now. 
You sing that song, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You're the builders that rejected him. He's the cornerstone. God made him the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there, here, Here's why. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And this is, I will stand up and I'll say this in every situation. I've said this in front of groups of people that were like majority not Christian. And you say it in front of church, you say it in front of unbelievers. But guys, there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. I can love, I can love people of all different uh, colors and stripes, but I will tell you this, there's no other way to God. And for me to tell you otherwise is to doom you to death. And I would never hate somebody so much as to do that. Would we get along better if we all just said, live and let live? Your way gets you to heaven. My way gets me to heaven. We might get along better for a little bit that way. But people will die and go to hell. And I hope you're okay with I don't hope you're okay with that. I hope you're not okay with that. There's no other name. See, it's only the name of Jesus that can save somebody. It's only the name of Jesus that can heal someone. It's only the authority that he was rightfully given. The book of Philippians says this. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ. Who though he considered it not robbery to be equal with God, humbled himself. And took on the form of a bondservant. Became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him. And gave him a name, which is above every name. That at that name, every knee would bow. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the gospel. When Jesus died and he rose again, God gave him the authority to save. He earned the authority. He won the authority. He trampled over death, hell, and the grave. God is not saving people because all of a sudden he feels sorry for you. He made a way for you to be saved in, in a way that, was, that fulfilled justice, in a way that fulfilled righteousness and holiness. You are not just being saved because God says suddenly, you know what? I don't care about sin anymore. You're being saved because somebody paid that price. And there's only one name that has the right to save you. That has the power to snatch you out of the jaws of hell. And it's in Jesus Christ. Verse 13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed, began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man, and remember, only a, not too long before, Peter was terrified of being recognized as being with Jesus. Now he's proud of it. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do to these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. We would if we could. But so that it will not spread any further. Wouldn't you hate for healings to break out? I mean, terrible. So that it won't spread any further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do you get yet that this is the point? The point is the name of Jesus. That's what's making demons shake. That's what's making, that's what's turning the world upside down. It is the name of Jesus. That's what, there, there's no power in you just talking about an amorphous God who you've created in your own image. But it is the name of Jesus that carries power. 
But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you can be the judge of that. For we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And when they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. They sent him away, warning them, don't ever speak in that name again. I, I just want to bring out a couple points before we close here. They walked in the name, and what, what we see here is, is a picture of two men totally being immersed in the name of Jesus. Think about it. They're not shy anymore. They're not afraid anymore. Why? Because we stand in the name of Jesus. Observing their confidence, they recognize they've been with Jesus. They, they didn't have confidence based on their education. They were uneducated. Not based on their training. They were untrained. But something caused them to be confident. What was it? It was the name of Jesus. It was the name of Jesus that healed the man. It was the name of Jesus that they said you can be saved by. It's the name of Jesus that they submitted to. Listen, you can't just use the name of Jesus unless you're surrendered to the name of Jesus. The, the centurion said to Jesus, I'm a man just like you. I'm a man under authority. Because I'm under authority, I can tell my servant to go and he'll go. I can tell him to come and he'll come. He says, because I'm under authority, I have authority. How many times have we used the name of Jesus and we were not submitted to the name of Jesus? We had no surrender to the name of Jesus. We were using it like a lucky charm. But if you do that, you'll have the same result that the seven sons of Sceva had in Acts 19 who were beat and stripped naked by a demonic man because they used the name like it was an abracadabra, but they were not praying or speaking in the name of Jesus. Peter and John knew today was this man's day because they had submitted to God. Because of this, they're confident. Because there's confidence in the name of Jesus. And when you know I'm here on his behalf, you're like a messenger who came on behalf of a king. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here because of me. I'm here on behalf of the king. So you walk different when you're representing the king. You, you act different when you're representing the king. You know you're carrying something that you didn't earn. I'm representing a king. We're his ambassadors. We bear his name. It changes everything because there is a self-centered humility that says, oh, God, couldn't use me. Why would he use me and you back off? I just want to be in the background. But that's self-centered humility. You recognize it because you're constantly saying the word me. But Christ-centered humility is bold. Christ-centered humility doesn't pretend that you're the reason this man got healed. Doesn't pretend you have anything wise to say without him. But you know that if God put me here, God can speak through me. I'm nothing without him, but through him all things are possible. He didn't save me because I'm good, but he saved me because he's good. Like Paul said, I'm not qualified, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not wasted, for I worked harder than everybody else, but it wasn't me working. It was the grace of God working in me. I just, I don't think any of us will have exactly the same experience every day. And you may not have the same experience as Peter had here. But I believe you're going to have similar moments where you are faced with the reality that what I have is, what I have in myself is different than what I have in Christ. And I have something to offer the world. And I know sometimes we read the book of Acts and we see the big moments, right? And so we just think every day needs to be the big moment. But can I just point something out to you? Peter and John went every day to the temple.
They went every day to the temple. This day, this man got healed. They walked by this man several times. There was a fertile ground for miracles. And that fertile ground is godly habits and discipline. And nobody runs around the church over that word. Discipline, praise the Lord. Godly habits, tell me more. Right? We're not like, you know, I have got to hear about this. I'll tell you what, though, the Bible tells us every day these people were going to the temple. A lot of times these big moments start out of a pattern of small moments where you are saying, I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to be surrendered to his. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And when you continually put yourself in that position, then you'll be in the right place at the right time, in the right frame of mind, in the right spirit to be able to operate in the power of God. Is it any more the power of God that this man is healed than the fact that every need that they had was met? That they had relationship, thousands of people got added to their church and somehow everybody gets along? They could eat together and fellowship together and have communion together and somehow it's working? Is that not a miracle as well? Some people just only, I just only want this, I only want the spectacular. As one of my friends said, we often miss the miraculous searching for the spectacular. Dig into who God is. You'll see the spectacular. But don't, don't just say, I'm moving from spectacular to spectacular. Just move from glory to glory. And stay in that place. Times of refreshing come from the presence of God. You know, sometimes it's just about the first thing you need to do is show up where God told you to show up. Be faithful, but stand in the name of Jesus. Preach in the name of Jesus. Trust the name of Jesus. Surrender to the name of Jesus. Don't pray a prayer, friends. Don't pray a prayer and use the name of Jesus unless you know it's God's will. Sometimes we've abused the name of Jesus. People go around way bitter and disappointed because we told them something in the name of Jesus that was not in the name of Jesus. I can pray all day long that Jesus would punch my enemy five times in the nose in the name of Jesus, but he's not going to do it. I can say, Lord, bless my trip to Vegas, Lord. Lord, I want you to make me prosperous at the, at the tables, Lord. Just mm, at, even at the airport, at the coin machine, in Jesus' name, cha-ching. You know what? In the name of Jonathan, I went to Vegas. And I can twist Jonathan enough that it sounds like Jesus, but doesn't make it in the name of Jesus. When you get into his word and you get filled with his spirit, you begin to understand who he is. And his character is his name. His nature is his name. When you study the life of Jesus, watch the life of Jesus. If you're going to say in the name of Jesus, get to know Jesus. And I'm not telling you to use the name of Jesus less. I'm just telling you to use it like it's meant to be used. May God be glorified. Would you stand with me if you're able? Thank you, Jesus.